The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn with me in your New Testaments to Acts chapter 28. That's the final chapter of Luke's record in Acts. We'll be starting with a couple of verses there this morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning and to be able to gather in the name of our Lord and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Probably mention this again this evening, but there's a lot of people who have their minds on different things today. It's a big day for the wrong reason, and the minds of a lot of people are at least to the exclusion of more important things. And I think we all know what we're talking about, but we're going to be here this morning and this evening, Lord willing, um, to worship our God in spirit and in truth, no matter what big game may be on. And so I commend you for being here, and I've been encouraged by your presence, and I encourage you to be here again this evening, and I hope that we've all been encouraged by the worship to God in spirit and in truth. We know that the book of Acts follows the gospel of Luke and his straightforward account to give the things which Jesus did in, in deed and in word, and then to follow that up with the apostles' uh, ministry that he gave to them and the Great Commission. And the book of Acts lays out for us basically a blueprint of the church and gives us a pattern of many things to follow in order to be right with God. We also know Acts follows more specifically in the first 13 chapters, or first 12 chapters rather, the Apostle Peter. While it mentions other men and events, we see primarily Peter is the subject matter. And in the last half of Acts, it follows Paul. And so when we get to Acts chapter 28, we're reading about Paul and his last missionary journey. And we read of three different journeys that he makes throughout his ministry and preaching the gospel in various cities and then revisiting them to see how the brethren are doing and all of the things that Paul had to endure during these times, which he notes several times throughout the epistles. Well, he appealed to Caesar after being accused by the Jews, as we're very familiar with. They wanted simply to kill Paul. And like with Jesus, they accused him of wrongdoing when he had done no wrong. And he gave his defense before several men. Agrippa is one that we're very familiar with, where he gave his defense before Agrippa, a man who knew the law, and he was examined by such men and determined to be innocent. Nevertheless, the Jews persisted and wanted him dead. So Paul, as a Roman citizen, appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you shall go, is what one of the leaders said. And so in Acts chapter 28, he's actually in the middle of his journey going to Rome on a ship with prisoners so that he could stand before Caesar and be judged as a Roman citizen by Caesar. This journey was made in three different ships, from Caesarea to Myra, from Myra to Malta, and from Malta to Putuli, a city in Italy where he would then travel on land to Rome to appeal to Caesar. Well, in chapter 27, it shows the reason why he went from Myra to Malta. It wasn't according to plan. It was because they reached a very huge tempest that gave them a challenge. They were put on a ship, an Alexandrian ship, sailing to Italy in Myra, and never was it intended to make a stop. It was intended to go to Italy, but when they faced that great tempest, they had to make a decision to save themselves, and they saw land. And so they determined to run the ship onto the land, but 
they actually ran this ship aground on a sandbar before, and the waves were crashing against the ship and tearing the ship to bits. And so they they aborted the ship, and everyone made it to shore safely. Some of them swam, and some of them made it to shore on bits and pieces of the ship. And Acts chapter 28, in the first several verses, records what happened when they made it to that island that they never intended to set foot on. So when they had escaped, then they, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. It goes on to, to speak about an account where Paul was bit by a serpent, and they assumed that he was one who was guilty of a great crime because what would why would that happen to a man? And then he didn't die, and they assumed he was a god and and all of those kinds of things, and it really demonstrates Paul's ministry on this island where God provided for him to take the gospel even to this secluded and isolated place. But I want us to especially notice what the reception was. With these men that were unknown, it was not planned. It was really random and in dire times. And what these natives did for them, it says that the natives showed us unusual kindness, Luke recording this as being one who was a part of it. They showed them unusual kindness. The New American Standard Bible says extraordinary kindness. It was unexpected, but not only was it unexpected, but it was beyond what they ever would have thought would happen or what maybe they could have expected. It was extraordinary kindness. But perhaps what's even more extraordinary is what was done that was described as extraordinary kindness. They just made a fire. They made a fire, made them feel welcome because of the rain and the cold. And it's impressive in stories like this what small things can mean such greatness to those in need. They kindled a fire and made them feel welcome. And certainly while this was a very simple act, it was one which required sacrifice. It was one which required great effort as it was raining and as it was cold as these people most likely left their warm houses where they had a fire going to tend in kindness to complete and total strangers. And I simply want to take this idea and this example of such great service and display of love and and think about it for ourselves in, in spiritual context. Spiritually, there's a need for kindling fires, so to speak, as those natives of Malta did for everyone, but especially how much more so as Galatians 6 says, those of the household of faith. Consider firstly, though, that we do face cold in this life. This is not a life that is easy. It has never been easy. God has never promised anyone a life of ease. We do indeed face cold. That is something which requires some warmth for us to endure it. We face trial and tribulation. This is the plight of all men and especially it is the plot of the Christian. Just consider in Acts the 14th chapter, after the Apostle Paul was stoned and actually left for dead, Jews were taught the gospel, and when they became jealous, when the gospel was presented to the Gentiles, Paul said they judged themselves unworthy of salvation, so we're going to the Gentiles. So they stirred up a mob and stirred up people against Paul and eventually followed him to Iconium and stoned him and left him for dead. And Paul did not die. And when he got up, he went to the disciples. And it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples in Acts 14.22, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, 
we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Those were cold times for Paul. They weren't the only ones for Paul. We must, though, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom. Must is a word of necessity, meaning it's not optional. It's not like it could happen or it may happen, but we must. It is of necessity, according to the design of God, that we go through many tribulations. That is, we have to endure them. We have to come out the other side proven if we're to enter the kingdom of God. And obviously the kingdom had come. He speaks of this prospectively in regard to the consummation of being in God's eternal presence. In order to get there, you've got to go through tribulation is what Paul is saying. First Peter speaks to this in verses 1 or 6 through 9 of his first chapter when he explains that hope that they had begotten again and too, and they greatly rejoice in that, but only for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And he explains that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he explains that when your faith is proven genuine in this test, you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there's an end to this coldness, but it's a necessary coldness to go through in order to reach the warmth of eternity in heaven. And it's necessary because it proves or disproves that our faith is genuine. Paul explains it this way in Romans 8 and verse 20 when he says the creation, speaking of that created in Christ Jesus is the context, the spiritual creation, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. If God gave us the option, I think we would all take the easy way If he said you can either go through life to get to heaven and experience many trials and tribulations, or you can get to heaven without experiencing any of them, I think we would opt for the second option. But we were subjected to futility, even as Christians, not willingly. But God designed it that way because he subjected us to it in hope. And trials and tribulations, heaven is something which grows much more appealing to us. In Hebrews 11 and verse 13, it describes Abraham and his family as those who embraced and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. And God is one who is not ashamed to be called those people's God, for He has prepared a city for them. They desired a better or a heavenly country, and God loved them even more so and wanted to be associated with them even more so. And so God subjects us to trials and tribulations so that we can become further disconnected from this life and strive furthermore to reach heaven. But especially as Christians, we go through those cold times of trials and tribulations. It's something that is for all men. People were subjected to famine in the New Testament. The Christians were a part of that, but it was the whole land. People are subjected to death from the beginning all the way till this time. And those are things that we experienced before we were Christians, but it even multiplies after. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. They suffer ostracism as well. In 1 Peter 4.4, they think it's strange that we don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, so they speak evil of us. So we have it bad enough living under the sun. Christians have trial and tribulation even multiplied. That's a coldness that we have to endure. And while we're doing that, we have to endure the cold of worldliness. Being a Christian is not easy, not only because of trial and tribulation, but because of what is the antithesis of following Christ, and that is worldliness. The 
apostles were subjected to this, and we likewise, Jesus mentioned this in John 17 in His prayer to the Father, when He said in John 17 and verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. In other words, they're not exempt from the sinfulness in the world. They're surrounded by it. But what God provides for us is a way to be set apart. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that's His Word. But what that amounts to is some strife and heartache, struggle. Worldliness is around us, and it always will be around us. And it requires great effort on our part to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the wiles of the devil. And in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, Paul goes on to describe that conflict as wrestling not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and against rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of the wickedness in the heavenly places. You ever thought about a wrestling match and how, how close contact that is and how rough that can be? And, and maybe some would even say how gross it is with all the sweatiness in a wrestling match and whatever you think about that. That's how he's describing our conflict with Satan. It's down and dirty. It's close contact, it's always surrounding us, and it takes great effort to succeed in that conflict. Worldliness is a burden that we have to bear throughout this life as we're surrounded by it. Lot is a great example of this in 2 Peter 2 and verse 7. Speaking of the deliverance that God gives to righteous men, he said, He delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. There in them is, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah. He calls Lot a righteous man. And I'm sure you've heard a sermon by the title, Pitching Your Tent Towards Sodom, because that's a pretty popular study that many preachers have preached on throughout the ages. And there's a very real principle to demonstrate from Lot's ill decision to pitch his tent towards Sodom. He made his life miserable. But the Bible calls him a righteous man, which tells me that you can be righteous in a world full of sin and worldliness, and that actually be a burden to you. And that's exactly what Lot did to himself. But even if we try to avoid evil at all costs, and we get as far away from it as possible, we can't get away from it. We're surrounded by it. And righteous men are tormented from day to day in that regard. Sin is everywhere. It's inescapable. It's in our face and forms of entertainment and communication. You can't even meet a stranger most of the time without them assuming that you're okay with profanity. So sin is everywhere, and, and that, that's a burden. That, that can get really difficult as one who's seeking to live righteously. We've got to endure that. Psalm 23 and verse 4 says, We do indeed walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And while that may certainly be indicating physical death, there are always spiritual applications to the Psalms, and what's more devastating than physical death is spiritual. Brethren, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death every day because we're surrounded by worldliness. We're presented with temptations, as Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, that are things that we desire to do, but the Spirit says we must not do them. And they lust against each other so that we might not do the things that we lust or that we desire. First Peter 5 and verses 8 and 9 says that the devil is seeking to devour us and we must resist him steadfast in the faith. Worldliness is some cold we must face in this life. And then along with that, as we try to abstain from 
the life of worldliness that everyone else is living, and we're trying to do good, while that's a wonderful and rewarding thing, it's a burden. As simple as that, it's a burden. There's a reason why the majority of people don't want to commit themselves to Christ, because it's not easy. It's a burden. It takes sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Paul tells them to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have a hope, but, but we labor and endure knowing that it's not in vain, but it still is a burden. It's still work. It still takes effort. It's not easy. But you know, we read of a section of Scripture like 1 John 5 and verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. And we, we wonder how that reconciles with this idea of something being burdensome as we do God's will. Well, consider what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls his burden light, but it's still a burden. But God's commandments are not burdensome. And so I think the answer is in the context of Galatians 6. Galatians 6 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Each one shall bear his own load. That's a responsibility. It's something no one else can bear for us. A burden of verse 2 is something that we can help each other bear. But this load is a responsibility and it's up to each one of us. And so while we're doing good and there's worldliness that's surrounding us, that can be a burden. It can be hard. It can be difficult. And that's why he says, In verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And so if we're trying to do good, but we're going through trials and tribulations, if we're trying to do good, but the world is beckoning us every day to do what is wrong, that's going to have the tendency to lead us to weariness. And Paul says, don't grow weary. And you cannot grow weary, not succumb to that cold, by realizing if you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. In addition to that, it's just the truth that even those who are in the church won't always be faithful. And for a faithful person to experience his brother or sister in Christ not being faithful, that can be a discouragement. And that's actually the context of Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's one who is spiritually minded, and they have to come over and help their brother who is just not as spiritually minded, and they're in sin. And while that's a loving act and a caring act, it can become discouraging if our brethren aren't faithful. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. And I know there are many other things we could talk about, but suffice it to say, we face coldness in this life. It's not all wonderful things. There's a lot of things we have to endure, but thank God that He's given us a means of warmth. He's kindled a fire for us. Consider firstly the Word of God. In Psalm 119 and verse 105, it's described as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And while that's showing the illumination the Word provides us so that we know where to go, as we are familiar with lights and things which provide light, almost always bring warmth with it. I think we've seen a demonstration of that in Luke the 24th chapter when Jesus has been raised from the dead, but some people don't know it yet. And there are two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they are speaking to one another about the recent events of who they thought was the Messiah, His rejection and His death and His burial. And they are overtaken with sorrow. And Jesus comes upon them, but He doesn't reveal Himself to them. And He asks them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Luke 24, verse 17. And so they describe to, unbeknownst to them, Jesus, the events that recently happened, wondering how He is not aware of these things. And then he says this in verse 25, 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He still hasn't revealed himself. They ask him to come with them. He stays with them and eats with them. And eventually he leaves and they realize he was Jesus. And I want us to notice what is said of them in verse 32. They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened to us the Scriptures? What do they mean there? Our our hearts burned within us when He talked with us. It's not talking about some miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit, some better felt than told experience. He was explaining and demonstrating to them that the horrific and sorrowful events of the recent past were actually a fulfillment of God's will so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And they're making these connections, and as honest hearts confront the truth, they realize that it's valid, and that's what it always meant, even though I didn't understand it to be. And it starts to comfort them, and they realize this was all a part of God's plan. It actually provided for me what I desperately needed in forgiveness of sins. It warmed their hearts, as we say sometimes. That's what the Word of God does for us. It provides warmth for us in a cold, dark world. Romans 15 and verse 4 says it this way, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Verse 5 calls God the God of patience and comfort. And so we connect that with 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you have ever wondered what that comfort Paul's talking about is and what that comfort Paul's talking about that he can give as he's been comforted, you connect those verses. God is the God of all comfort. He extends that comfort through His Word. It's comforting to know that we have a hope. It's comforting to know that we have forgiveness. Everything God has as planned for us as His people is comforting to talk about and to know. He's provided us warmth with His Word. And secondly, He's provided us warmth with the avenue of prayer. In James 5 and verse 13, James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone experiencing the cold times of life? Pray to God. Verse 16 tells us why. Because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I think one of the components of prayer that brings me comfort and warmth is the understanding of prayer's action, of understanding of prayer's process, of what it actually does, where our prayers actually go. And the throne scene in Revelation 5 and verse 8, I know I've pointed this out many times, and it's just because it's a, it's a very powerful verse to me. It describes golden bowls of incense before the throne of God. It says these are the prayers of the saints. In other words, every time we pray, our prayer ascends to God. I think there's a graphic demonstration of this in the story of Jonah that we all know and love. Jonah was a man who fled from the presence of God when God gave him a command to go preach to Nineveh. So God brought a tempest on the boat which he was on, and they threw him over the sea, and then he provided a great fish to swallow him up. Well, Jonah in Jonah 2 describes what he was thinking and what he was going through when he was in the tempest. When they had thrown him overboard, he thought he was dead. And it says in verse 4, I've been cast out of your sight, Jonah 2 verse 4, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. In other words, I never thought I'd see the light of day again. This was it. I was dead. 
Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He explains, verse 7 of Jonah 2. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. When Jonah had gallons and gallons and pounds and pounds of water over his head and was losing the last bit of oxygen in his lungs, he was praying to God and the prayer was going to the temple of God. That's what prayer does. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're going through, what you're experiencing, who's trying to stop you from turning to God. You can turn to God in prayer and He will hear you if you're faithful. And I think that's why prayer is a warmth to us. Philippians 4 and verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We give our troubles, our cares, our anxieties to the one who created and is therefore omnipotent and can do something about it through his providence. And if we've given it to someone like that, we don't have to worry anymore. That's a peace that surpasses the understanding of any man. That's on the side of the Christians. That's warmth that we're offered. But you know, there's another thing that provides us warmth in this world of the frigid cold, and that is fellowship with Christ. Consider the Apostle Paul's experience as he recounts it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he's in Rome at the time of this writing. He's under arrest, and, and he's before Caesar, likely after he's already been acquitted by the accusation of the Jews, yet we know that Paul would eventually die at the hands of the Roman government anyway. So he's nearing his death. He's saying that my life is poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. He's going to die for the cause of Christ. And he says at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. He speaks of a man named Demas, who once was helpful to him, but has forsaken him, having loved the present world. He had companions, and now no one's standing with him at all. Wouldn't that be a feeling of loneliness and coldness? What gave him warmth? What gave him comfort during this time? Verse 17, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What comforted Paul during this time was not that people stood with him. That would have comforted him, but they forsook him. What comforted Paul at this time is knowing the Lord was with him. And the Lord was not with him in the flesh. That's what we need to understand. The Lord was not with him in some miraculous way. It doesn't say that Paul was given some advantage that we don't have by some miraculous operation or presence of Jesus by him where he could see Jesus and feel Jesus where we don't really get that advantage the Lord stood with him and that he stood with the Lord. He was standing in righteousness. He was preaching the gospel. He was doing what is right. It reminds me of a phrase in 1 Corinthians 5 when, when Paul is giving the instruction to withdraw from this disorderly brother. He says, along with my spirit, I've already judged him to be unfaithful. But he says, when you're gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. That is not an easy thing to do, carrying out that command that he gave in 1 Corinthians 5 to discipline that individual. But the comfort that they could receive is that this was the Lord's will. The Lord was with them in doing that. And it wasn't that he was there physically, but the general point is whenever we do something that is according to Christ's will, Christ is with us when we do that thing. 
He is with us. So it doesn't matter if we are the only ones. We have Christ back of us because we're doing His will, and that's comforting. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, the Hebrew writer said, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things as you have. For He Himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that is true for us today. There's conditions. As Amos 3 and verse 3 says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Jesus won't walk with us unless we're in agreement with His will. We're submitting to His will. But if we're submitting to His will, He will never leave us nor forsake us. I think that we're given a graphic and wonderful depiction of this general concept in the life of Stephen. Remember where he was giving his defense before the Sanhedrin and ultimately accusing him them of sin. He reached a conclusion and application. You're just like all of these people who destroyed God's messengers and rejected Him. And when they heard these things in Acts 7.54, they were cut to the heart and gnashed at Him with their teeth. But He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it doesn't say He was delivered. It said He was stoned. He died. And while we're not given that visual, we're given the Scripture that backs it up. Stephen received comfort because of his fellowship with Jesus. And while we may not give a vision into heaven like he was, we can rest assured if we're faithful with Christ, knowing that we have the exact same comforts that Stephen had. When we're trying to do good in a world of ungodliness, fellowship with Christ warms us. But if fellowship with Christ warms us, then fellowship with those who are in fellowship with Christ will warm us. And that by God's design. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, the Apostle Peter describes their conversion. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. He goes on in chapter 2 and verse 10 to say you were not a people, but you are now the people of God. In other words, you were born into a family. You were born into a family of love, and you were born into that family of love so that you could participate in loving those people who are your family. That's a wonderful comfort that we get by being added to the body of Christ because as we're in fellowship with Christ, we're in fellowship with all those who are in fellowship with Christ and that by God's design so that we can help each other in these times of difficulty and the cold that we must endure. For example, in Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of of others. And so if everyone's functioning in that way within the body of Christ, then certainly that's going to be a warmth provided us to get through the difficult times. And that by God's design, we're in fellowship with one another and that has a practical component to it. It's not just a statement of fact in the background, but it's a practical statement of fact that takes action. He gives an example of this in chapter 4 of Philippians when he says, I implore you, Odia and Syntyche in verse 2, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And notice in verse 3, he says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel and Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Apparently, Yodi and Syntyche were, they had some strife among each other. There was something not right with those sisters in Christ. How were they going to get through that? How, how were they going to reach an agreement? How were they going to, to get past this conflict? He said, you Christians, you companions, everyone else, help these sisters. Get along. Help them overcome these differences and, and act toward each other what they should. Someone might be inclined to think, that's not my problem, but according to chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition, but look out for each other's interest. And the interest of Yodi and Syntyche is to get past this and to be in unity again, in harmony. And you help them. That's what the body of Christ provides. 
Or as we saw in the context of Galatians 6 and verse 1, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ultimately, as God provided us with warmth individually, like the comfort spoken of in 2 Corinthians 1, we can then provide warmth for each other in that same way. And I want to elaborate on that for a little bit more this morning. Consider the fact that fellowship with Christians is what God provides for us in part as warmth during this life of the frigid cold. How can we, like the natives of Malta, kindle a fire for each other? How can we provide each other warmth during these difficult times? I want to offer you three things for this sermon this morning. Firstly, by not forsaking the assembly. And I understand that the assembly is a command of God, and and that's something that's also between us and Him, first and foremost, like anything. But, But it's also something between each other. And when we forsake the assembly, we fail to provide the warmth that we can provide for each other. In Hebrews 10, it puts it this way in verse 24, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and is so much more as you see the day approaching. So the negative is not forsaking the assembly, but not forsaking the assembly is the negative to describe the fulfillment of the positive to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. How do you consider one another in order to stir up love and good works? Well, some of you are forsaking the assembly and you're not fulfilling this. So to fulfill this, stop forsaking the assembly. You see how that connects? So a warmth we can provide for each other is just showing up to the assembly and participating. When we do that, we're being considerate of one another. Like Philippians 2 and verse 4 tells us to do, let each of you not look out for his own interest, but for the interest of others. When we forsake the assembly, we're not being considerate of each other. We're being the exact opposite. We're being selfish. We're not being mindful of our brethren. And we're not providing warmth. We're adding to the cold. How simple it is to help our brethren by simply assembling with them. You know, there's this idea as demonstrated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 that some think they're not important. So it's kind of a free pass they give themselves. I'm not going to assemble because I'm not going to be missed. I'm not important. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 15. Because I am, should, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each of one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And they, if they were all member, where would the body be? And so for someone to say, I'm not important, I'm not, I'm not going to be missed, is to suggest that even though I'm not, or even since I'm an ear, I'm not I, I'm, I'm not important, I'm not of the body. And what you do is you neglect the eye of its hearing. Or you neglect the ear of its seeing. Or you neglect the nose of its smelling. All of these things connect. It doesn't matter what our part is and and how big a role we may think we have. It's a role given by God. And when we forsake the assembly, we forsake that role. And therefore, we don't provide our brethren with what they need. He says we consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That is provoke us to doing God's will. How does that happen when we assemble? Well, we worship God together. And while we worship God, we're also helping each other learn about God and encouraging each other to do God's will. For example, in singing, Colossians 3.16 says, We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in these songs, hymns, and spiritual songs as we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So we're speaking to each other. How How can you participate in that if you're not here? 
How are your brethren benefited by your action if you're not here to perform that action? Or with praying, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says in verse 15, what is the conclusion? I will pray with the Spirit and also pray with the understanding. And he says, otherwise, how is he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Have we ever considered prayer to be a form of edification? Because it is. We can learn in prayer. I learn all the time from the prayers offered by by others and and their heartfelt plea and pouring out of their emotions before God. And and I learn about them and I learn about God and I learn about what God wants for us from a, a faithful and fervent prayer of a righteous man. And we neglect each other of that if we're not assembling to pray together. Preaching as well, Acts 20 and verse 7, it says that Paul was ready to part the next day, spoke to them, and continued his message until midnight. And if we're not careful, preaching can be one of those acts of worship that becomes a passive activity where where it's kind of one-sided sometimes. But you're participating just as much as the preacher when the preacher's preaching, or so it should be. Nehemiah chapter 8 demonstrates that when it speaks about the reverence that was displayed by the people when the book of the law was read. And we won't read it, but it just... It displays their attentiveness. They gave attention. It also displays their reverence. They stood up when the Word of God was presented. It it displayed their agreement with the message spoken. They said amen in Nehemiah chapter 8. And they were given the understanding, so they had an understanding of it. And then they made application of those things. So it's not simply a one-sided effort. You can't participate in those ways without being here. But, But when we participate, think of it this way. When someone sees your attention when the Word of God is displayed, when, when someone sees your agreement with the Word of God displayed, when someone sees you make application of the Word of God, how much does that build us up to do the same? See the wisdom of God in that. So we exhort one another, admonish and exhort to urge one to pursue some course of conduct, Vine says, to love and good work. Secondly, we can kindle the fire for each other by greeting one another. That's a very simple thing that I think we're very good at. I think it comes naturally in most cases. When, when people have something in common and when they're a part of something as big as God's family, it's easy to greet one another. And I think sometimes we, we underappreciate it. Perhaps we don't see how great that is in God's scheme of things. But remember in Romans 16, 16, Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. How could that provide warmth? The word Greek is espazomai in the Greek. And Vine says it literally means to signify to draw to oneself. And Strong further gives the figurative implication of that. It is to enfold in the arms, that is by implication to salute or figuratively to welcome. It's something as simple as welcome. In Acts 28 it says, they kindled a fire for us and made us feel welcome. And that's one of those small things that goes a long way. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Just like we have our customary greetings, they had their customary greeting of a kiss but he describes it as holy. So it's never a greeting that undermines God's will and is therefore unholy, but something which goes with God's will in purity. With us, it's a handshake, maybe a hug, but a holy hug, maybe maybe a nod or a hello or exchanging pleasantries. How are you today? Those things are so small, but they're a great provision of warmth. And consider this. The opposite of greeting someone, which is to make feel welcome, to enfold in the arms, to draw to oneself, is to ignore someone or avoid someone. 
or make someone feel unwelcome. Think of James 2, the poor man. They did not greet him. They made him feel unwelcome. That's as sinful as anything, and it's as discouraging as anything when brethren don't have that warmness toward one another. It goes a long way, and that's demonstrated in Romans, the 16th chapter, because Paul, after saying, or before saying, greet one another, he was greeting all the brethren. He greeted individuals in verses 3 through 5, Aquila and Priscilla, and he noted that they are fellow workers in Christ who risked their own necks. And so he noted their work and their sacrifice. In verse 5, he says, Greet my brother Epitanus, or Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia. So maybe he was the first convert in Achaia, and it, it was something beneficial to point out about his character and his work. In verse 6, he mentions some people who were working hard. In verse 7, some people who were suffering for Christ and who had faith that extended beyond what Paul's was. They were a gospel convert before him. In verse 8, there was someone that was simply acknowledged, someone who worked with Paul in verse 9, someone who was approved. Maybe he withstood a, a trial and his faith was proven genuine. And through the rest of that section, he just mentions random people. Doesn't tell us much about them at all except that they were being acknowledged by the great apostle. They were put in a place of eternal history in the epistle of Romans. A simple greeting goes a long way. And lastly, I think we see a very fundamental principle to those who are members of the church in Acts the second chapter. Noting first this in Hebrews 3, in verse 12, the apostle Paul, or rather the Hebrew writer, says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He spoke of exhortation in chapter 10 as well, but here he adds daily, which implies that it won't just be something that is needed and required on the Lord's day, or even just on the day of assembly, but every day, daily. I think this is corroborated by the very beginning of the church in Acts 2 when it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. It concludes this great chapter of the beginning of the church in verse 46 by saying this, speaking of those who are added to the church, that 3,000, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Notice there, he says that they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple. That is, continuing daily together. Now, in the temple was the place of their worship during that time. You think of 3,000 souls. How could they meet in one place? Well, the place is big as the temple provided for that. But he says daily. And so while certainly they were fulfilling the command to assemble on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And the infancy of the church Probably what led to this and provoked this was the newness of this great news, the good news of the gospel, and the newfound relationships they had with each other that they never would have had with each other. Jews from every nation under heaven, people of different cultures and customs and languages now are joined together in Christ. And, and that's something they want to talk about. That's something they want to participate in, in the breaking of bread and fellowship and, 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 and doctrine and the, the apostles' doctrine. Well, you can only do the breaking of the bread on the first day of the week, obviously, by the pattern of sound words. You can hear preaching every day. You can sing songs of praise every day. You can pray to one another or pray to God together daily. And that's what they were doing in the infancy of the church. And so I, I might liken it to us having a gospel meeting. Why would we ever 
meet every day of a week at one point in time to hear preaching and teaching when we already do it twice a week? Well, because it's important. and We need daily exhortation. But notice he adds to that, they did that in the temple, but also breaking bread from house to house. This is something they did from house to house. And as it implies daily from verse 46, it's not the Lord's Supper. He's speaking about common meals. What would bring a Jew from this side of the world and a Jew from this side of the world together in one house eating together? Well, their fellowship in Christ. Because they had a relationship together now in Christ, that would provoke them to spend time together and talk about those things and celebrate those things and, and be together. Not in the assembly. There are things that, that we can do that are beneficial to each other that cannot be done in the assembly. And eating together is one of them, like 1 Corinthians 11 indicates. It's not a common meal that has no place in the assembly. But it can happen from house to house. And so the reason that they were doing this was because of their spiritual fellowship in Christ, but that spiritual fellowship and that love for each other will lead to other things. In Acts 9, when Paul tried to join the disciples and they didn't allow him to because he was the persecutor and Barnabas vouched for him, after he was validated by Barnabas, it says in verse 28, he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. That's a phrase that considers the idea of continuing daily with one another. It was used in Acts one twenty one when they were trying to find the replacement of Judas Iscariot, and this was one of the conditions. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. The Lord Jesus went in and out among us, and those who are with us meet the qualifications to be one of the apostles. And the lot fell on Matthias, as we know. In his commentary on Acts, Gareth Reese says of Acts one twenty one went in and out, which is the same phrase from Acts 9. Paul was coming in and going out among them. It is a phrase signifying that he was their constant companion. It expresses in general all the actions of life. And it's not to say that we're going to be able to practically get together in these ways every single day. But it does show us by the pattern of Scripture that that should be the common practice among brethren in a local congregation. And as I mentioned before, this is one of those things that cannot be accomplished by the assembly as a whole, as a work of the church. That's what led to the liberalism that we see in some churches of Christ, where they have a fellowship hall and they have common meals that are in the, the building provided for worship and should only be for worship by the treasury of the church and the meals paid for by the church. That can't happen. But we can do that outside the assembly still as brethren as individual works, which means this is something that's up to each one of us individually. If it's going to happen, if we're going to continue daily with one accord, eating meals from house to house and associating with each other outside of the assembly in other ways, it really just boils down to me. And we say that for ourselves. That's the only way that it will ever be accomplished. And that will draw us closer together. That's what happened, and that's why it was so necessary in the infancy of the church. They became immovable because they stood together, and they knew each other, and they knew their needs and their cares and their concerns. And so they warmed, warmed each other, provided that warmth by continuing daily with one accord. Obviously, there are many ways that we can kindle a fire for one another. Let us search them out and seek to apply them to our lives. I hope this was beneficial to you, though. Here this morning and not obeyed the gospel, a warmth that can be provided you is fellowship with Christ. As we mentioned, that happens through baptism into Christ for the remission of your sins. If you haven't done that, we encourage you to do so 
soon before it's too late. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.